Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Harmony. All right, well, if you're new to the Bible, a large portion of the New Testament is made up of the various letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to churches all around the Roman Empire. Churches like um, the, the, the Romans, okay? So he wrote to all these different cities, cities like Rome and, and, and Corinth, cities like Galatia and Ephesus and Philippi and Colossae and Thessalonica. Not only did Paul write letters to churches, local churches around the Roman Empire, he also wrote letters to church leaders, guys like Timothy and, and Titus and Philemon. And so we know that there are at least, or there are 13 what we call Pauline epistles in the New Testament. And so what an incredible story of the Apostle Paul. Here he is, a Pharisee, a Jew of the Jews, right? Zealous for Judaism, rejecting Jesus as the Messiah until Jesus one day knocked him off his camel or his horse or his donkey, whatever he was riding to the road to Damascus. And Jesus, the living, risen Christ, got his attention Paul submitted himself to the lordship of Jesus, and he became an apostle. And so he writes these letters, 13 letters. The question is, why? Why did he write all these letters to all these churches? And the answer is because he had a pastor's heart. He wanted to instruct these people. He wanted to encourage these people. He wanted to build them up. And if it was needed, Paul sometimes would write correction to these people. You see, there was a lot of problems in the first century in churches, just like there's a lot of problems today in churches. And so, again, the Holy Spirit of God comes upon the Apostle Paul, and during his uh, letter to the Romans, he would call him to write in a corrective way. Now, what was the problem in Rome? The problem, one of the biggest problems, was disunity. And so that's where we're at in Paul's letter to the Church of Rome. We've come to chapter 15. We see that part of the last section of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapters 14, 15, and 16, part of that last section has to do with disunity in the church, correcting disunity in the church. Now, I've been part of churches all my life. In fact, I, there, I could probably count on two hands the number of times I've missed church in my entire life on a Sunday morning. Okay, and so I've been around churches for many, many years. And one thing that I've noticed is this. Churches that are unified attract people, but churches that are divided repel people. Churches that are in harmony Churches that are harmonious, well, they're pleasing to be around, right? People walk in, it's like, man, these people really love each other. Man, check it out. They uh, forgive one another. They care for one another. You can tell that there's a, a spirit of unity in this place. And so churches that are in harmony attract people. But churches that allow division in their ranks, where there's all, all this gossiping and backbiting and backstabbing and, and judging one another and criticizing one another, 
where there's tension in the air, well, those types of churches absolutely repel other people. They're not harmonious. I looked up the word harmonious, and this is what I found. It means tuneful, forming a pleasing or consistent whole, free from disagreement or dissent. Tuneful. When I saw that, it made me think of various groups that sing in harmony. Has anybody ever heard of the group uh, Pentatonics? You ever heard of that group? Talk about harmonious, right? Talk about tuneful. And so as a way, through illustration, to prepare us for the rest of the message, just for one minute, I want you to check this out. I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? Well, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing, hallelujah. thinking, man, keep playing the song, you know, I want to keep hearing it. When talented vocalists like Pentatonix come together and they sing in harmony, it's a beautiful song. It attracts us, right? But what if untalented vocalists come together <laughs> to sing? What if me and Pastor Bob and Pastor Jacob and Pastor Lee got up here? To, do you guys want to see that? What, what if we got up here today? No, I'll spare you, believe me. I thought about it and I thought, no, I better not. Because if we, you know, me and Lee and, and Bob and Jacob got up here and we sang our version of, of uh, the Hallelujah song, you know, half of you would run. The other half of you would put your hands on your ears and you'd like, make it stop, right? Okay, so what's true in music is true in churches. Churches that get along. Churches that keep short accounts. Churches that forgive one another and love one another and are patient with one another and, and live in harmony. What happens to those churches? People come. Why? Because they're pleasing to be around. But churches, again, that allow division in their ranks, what do they do? They repel people. Okay, so in our passage today, what we're gonna do from verses one through 13 is we're gonna lift out four principles of harmony. Four principles that we can apply to our lives so that our church, Calvary Port St. Lucie, never repels people away, but our church, God uses our church to attract people because we love one another. And so Paul says to the church at Rome, verse 1, chapter 15, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to, what's the last two words? Please ourselves, okay? And so in verse one, Paul summarized what he already wrote about 
in chapter 14. We spent two messages on chapter 14. And so I'm not gonna re-preach the sermon. But basically what he's saying is that those who are stronger in the faith, maybe um, recognize their freedoms in Christ, have a greater grasp on those things, those people in the church should never do anything that would cause those who are less mature in the faith to stumble. In other words, we all should exercise our liberties in Christ, not in an insensitive way, not trying to please ourselves, but always being aware of who's around us and exercising our liberties in a careful and discreet way so we never cause anybody uh, to stumble. In other words, we shouldn't please ourselves, we should please our neighbor. And that's exactly what he says, right, in verse two? Let each of us please his what? Neighbor. For his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Paul is gonna quote a lot from the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, in verses one through 13. And so at the end of verse three, he's quoting from Psalm 69, verse nine. So here's your next, well actually your first point. When you're talking about harmony, we will be in harmony with one another when we please our neighbor more than ourselves. This is what we gotta get as a church. Now, if we're ever gonna get that, and if we're ever gonna live that, we can't take our cue from our culture, right? You guys live in the same culture I live in, and so you know that we live in a me-first culture. I was surprised to hear, I shouldn't be, but I was surprised to hear this past week a statistic 63% of Americans believe that the primary purpose of life is seeking their own personal fulfillment and enjoyment. Now, let me say that again in case some of you guys uh, aren't completely tuned in this morning, okay? This is the culture that we live in. This is America. 63% of Americans believe the primary purpose of life is to find enjoyment and personal fulfillment. That's three out of five Americans who believe it's all about me. You see, since the fall, man is self-absorbed. Since the fall, all we can think about is, how does this benefit me? What's in this for me? How will this affect me? Mankind has become what's known as anthropocentric. Anthropocentric. That means that man believes that he's the center, that he's the most important being in the universe. And so sadly, this me mindset has permeated the church. The culture in America has permeated the church, have you noticed? And so pastors and parishioners, both, have swallowed the me first, me mindset, hook, line, and sinker. Now, pastors who have swallowed this whole idea of this me mindset, they try to build what's known as seeker-driven churches. Maybe you're familiar with that term. Maybe you're not familiar with that term. I'm not a fan. Okay, so these kind of pastors, they go out of their way to make people feel comfortable in the church service. 
So what do they do? What they do is they share shorter topical messages that are usually focused on self-improvement. Okay, and so it's not teaching through the word of God. That's not what they do. Rather, they, they, they teach this, these topical, shorter messages, usually 20 minutes or so, and it's usually focused on how can I improve myself? Not only that, they downplay Bible doctrine. They believe doctrine is divisive. We don't need doctrine. If we're gonna you know, reach the next generation, then we need to stop talking about doctrine. Not only that, they make sure they stay clear of anything that may be controversial or offensive. And so, by the way, that's the beauty of being a topical pastor because people who preach topically, and, and don't, don't get me wrong, I believe every once in a while the Holy Spirit has done this in our church in 12 and a half years. He'll lead for us to take a break, a short break from our verse-by-verse -verse teaching and teach on a topic, and, and we, in obedience to the Holy Spirit, will do that. Okay, so I'm not saying there's anything wrong uh, per se with topical messages, but what I'm saying is that, is that really what should be the steady diet? Is that really what should be the mass, the, the, the vast majority of what you get on Sunday morning? Because here's the beauty of, of pastors that always teach topically, they can skip around in the Bible and just teach the things that are palatable to people. One of the things I love about going through books of the Bible verse by verse is that if there's a controversial or offensive thing in the Bible, we can't skip over it. We got to deal with it. Okay? But pastors who try to build seeker-driven churches, no, no, no. They want to make everybody feel comfortable. And so they avoid things that are offensive. They avoid words like repent. They avoid words like hell, and so they try to make church non-threatening, and then what they do is they bring Jesus in at the very end of, in the end of the service if they bring him in at all. Now, I've known about this whole thing for 20 years, this whole movement within churches, and I've never been a fan. I've never liked the philosophy uh, because I believe that Jesus should not just be brought in at the end, I believe Jesus should be the focus in the beginning, in the middle, in the end, in the whole service, because he's preeminent. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is to have first place. He's our hero. Ladies and gentlemen, nobody else paid the awful price of our redemption than Jesus Christ. So what are we doing tiptoeing around? What's sad about pastors that build these seeker-driven churches is that they, some of them actually send teams out into the neighborhoods and they ask lost people who are, not, who are not even seeking God, how would you like church to be? And they, they get their cues from lost people who, are, who, are, who, who don't even give a flip about God. And then what do they do? They tailor make their services to please those people. And what's happened in so many churches in America is that the service has become anthropocentric instead of Christocentric. The services have become man-centered instead of Christ-centered. It's not right. Jesus is the focus. He should be the focus of our services. He should be supreme in our hearts. And so I believe we should surrender to Jesus. We should be 
following Jesus. We should be worshiping Jesus. We should be celebrating Jesus. And if there's anything in our lives that displeases Jesus, we need, get ready, I'm gonna say the word. I don't wanna offend anybody. We need to repent. If there's anything in our lives that's displeasing to the Lord, we need to repent. I believe that if people walk through those doors and they're living in sin, they should feel uncomfortable in the church service. It's called conviction. It's a good thing. But what do we do? No, we don't want anything to do with guilt. We don't want anything to do with conviction. We want to always keep everything positive. We want to be made comfortable in our sin. And it grieves the heart of God. Instead of trying to placate people, pastors should take the advice of the Apostle Paul, who said to his young protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Do you hear those words? Not popular. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. And so pastors have bought into this me mindset. And by the way, so have Christians. Christians are just as guilty. Christians in America, many of them, now view uh, churches with a consumer mindset. Here's what I mean. If a Christian moves to a new area, let's say they move to, I don't know, um, Chattanooga, Tennessee. They move to an area. Well, after they get settled in, oh yeah, church, okay. So they don't just go looking for a church, they go church shopping. Shopping, isn't that interesting? I hear that. I'm a church shopper. Okay, so they go church shopping and the number one question they ask as they're looking at these churches is this. What church can best meet my needs? In other words, they're not praying, Lord, Show me a church in the Chattanooga area where I can go and serve you and serve people. That's the farthest thing from their mind. No, when they go church shopping, what's on their mind is, help me find a church that will serve me. What church will meet my needs? Because Christians are consumers and not contributors. We've become unlike Christ. How ironic, isn't it? This whole consumer mentality. How ironic because the word Christian means like Christ. Like Christ. Okay, so what was Christ like? Look, at, look again at verse three. What was he like? For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And so as Jesus, listen, hung on the cross, struggling to breathe, pouring out his life blood, I guarantee the thought running through Jesus' mind was, how will this benefit me? It's not what he was thinking. No, Jesus was arrested, blindfolded, spit on, beaten, tortured, crucified, not so he could please himself, but so that he could please us so he could save us, so that we could escape the punishment of hell for our sins. And so if we're gonna really emulate Jesus Christ, what do we have to do as Christians? 
We have to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. We have to stop being anthropocentric and start being Christocentric. We have to make sure that we know, we believe, we trust, we, we have confidence in the fact that Jesus is center. He's the most important being in the entire universe. And when we finally get this and we emulate Jesus Christ, we'll please our neighbor more than ourselves here at church. And, that, and the, the result of that is going to be harmony. Harmony in the church. Do you know where there's division, where there's discord in churches? It's when people are trying to please themselves more than they're trying to please their neighbor. Okay, now look at verse four. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning. Okay, he just quoted from Psalm 69.9. He's gonna quote a lot more from the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. And so he says, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the, what's the word? Scriptures, right there. Through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Here's your second point today. We will be in harmony with one another when we look to the scriptures for our hope. If you're thinking about making this your church home, then you gotta understand something right from the beginning. And that is, we believe in the inspiration of the scriptures. We believe that the 66 books of the Bible, 39 in the old, 27 in the new, we believe that every single word was breathed out by God. That's important. If you ever do move away from Port St. Lucie and go to another city and, and are looking for a church, okay, make sure you find out from the leadership of the church, do you believe in the inspiration of the scriptures? 2 Peter 3.16 says, all scripture, everybody say all, all, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, okay? And so Paul said to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So we believe the Holy Spirit moved upon the authors of the Bible and what they wrote were the words of God. Now some people say, well, prove it. <laughs> How do you know that? What about the Koran? What about other religious books? Why is your Bible inspired and other religious books are not? Well, I'll just quickly give you three reasons. I'll spend most of my time on reason number three, but the first, foremost, main reason we believe that the Bible is inspired, unlike any other book in the world, secular or sacred, is because of fulfilled prophecy. If you're new to the Bible, you gotta get this. The fact of the matter is, in the Bible, when you read through it, and I'm just two books now, Zechariah, Malachi, and I'll be done with reading through the entire Bible. I'm excited about starting again. And so, when you read through the Bible, here's what you see. Over and over and over again, men of God, under the inspiration of the Spirit, made predictions about the future. Here's what you need to know. Hundreds and hundreds of those predictions have already come true in history. They've already been fulfilled. 
What does that mean? Fulfilled prophecy means divine inspiration. Why? Because we can't predict the future. Does anybody know what's gonna happen tomorrow? Next week, next month, next year? No, we're men, we're women, we're finite. But God sees the, the beginning and the end. He sees the whole thing. And so fulfilled prophecy is an, a strong argument. And by the way, the Quran doesn't have any fulfilled prophecy. No other religious book has any fulfilled prophecy. And don't bring up Nostradamus because I could speak in generalities like Nostradamus and be accurate on anything about the future. We're talking about specific details. And by the way, many of them were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. In the, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, it foretells the birth of Christ the life of Christ, the suffering of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ. If I go any farther, I'm gonna fall off the, off the stage. But all these prophecies fulfilled in one man, Jesus Christ. Now, if all the prophecies for his first coming were literally fulfilled in history, good news. All the prophecies about his second coming will also be literally fulfilled in history. That means he's coming back. There's no confusion. There's no ambiguity. It's not hope so hope. It's definite. He's coming back. And so fulfill prophecy, change lives. There's another great evidence for the inspiration of this book. No other book even comes close to changing lives like the Bible. Still the number one bestseller. Why? Because when, when you have a humble heart and you read the word of God, the spirit of God comes and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Fulfilled prophecy changed lives. One of my favorite, I don't know if you ever heard of this, it's the evidence of continuity. This book is a miracle because of continuity. What do you mean? What I mean is that the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years. In America, how long have we been around? 240? Right, we think we're so big and bad, 240 years. We're a drop in the bucket compared to history. The Bible was put together over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages. And yet, when you read it, there's perfect continuity on all subjects, especially the subjects that are most controversial. Subjects like God and faith and ethics and morality and coming judgment and life after death. This Bible speaks with one voice. And so I dare critics of the Bible, go back in history, gather the writings over a 1500 uh, uh, span, uh, 1500 years, gather those writings up by 40 different people on three different continents and three different languages and see if those writings agree about anything. They won't. Why? Because we're human beings. We can't get along. But when the Holy Spirit of God comes upon 40 authors and he moves them along and he inspires them as to what they are to write, there is perfect continuity. The reason that there's perfect continuity here is because the Bible actually has 66 books, but there's only one author. His name is God. That's why there's perfect continuity. And when we finally come under the authority of the scriptures, right? Another thing you need to know if you're thinking about making this your church home, we believe, 
um, that this is the final authority for all matters of faith and practice. When we come underneath that authority, we all agree on that. Guess what? There's harmony because we have something that's fixed, that has the authority to tell us what's right and to tell us what's wrong. Look at verse 5. Now may the God of patience, and the church in Rome needed a God of patience. Our church needs a God of patience. I need a God of patience and you need a God of patience. If you need a God of patience, just say amen there, right? How many of you guys are happy God is patient with us? I, I am, I am. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded. In other words, get along people in Rome, like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with, I love this, one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Third principle of harmony. We will be in harmony with one another when we unite to glorify God. We will be in harmony We'll attract people instead of repelling them. We'll be in harmony with one another when we choose to unite with one purpose, and that is to glorify God. Did you know that the purpose of your existence is to glorify God? Did you know the reason that God knit you together in your mother's womb was that so you could be born to live for his glory? I love the Westminster's uh, Shorter Catechism. They had it right when they said this, and I quote, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I think, man, I wonder if that was inspired, right? What a difference from what we said before. 63% of Americans believe that the primary purpose of life is to find their personal fulfillment and their enjoyment. That's galaxies away from what the Bible teaches, captured in the Westminster Shorter Catechism that says the chief end of man, it's not your personal satisfaction or enjoyment. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. That's where it's at. That's why you were born. That's why you're on God's green earth. That's why you're taking breath into your lungs right now. It is absolutely to glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are to do this as individuals and we are to do this as a church. My hope, we've been doing this for 12 and a half years. It's okay, so we got... Who knows how long before the Lord either calls us home or he comes back and takes us up into the clouds. But my hope is that as long as I'm standing on this platform as the pastor of this church, that we always with one mind and with one mouth will glorify God through our beliefs and our behavior. First of all, through our beliefs. I hope that we always, 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 with one mind and one mouth, will hold to our belief that the Bible is the inspired, infallible word of God. That Jesus Christ is the eternal, uncreated son of God, right? That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That Jesus entered time and space through the womb of a virgin, 
that he lived an absolutely perfect life that always pleased his father, that he went to a cross as the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God, and he was sacrificed, brutally sacrificed on that cross to pay for your redemption and my redemption. He paid for our sins. That on the third day, he rose again bodily out of that grave. That he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And when he comes back, he's going to come back literally, not symbolically. And he's going to rule and reign for a thousand literal years as the son of David, fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, and the Davidic covenant, ruling from the throne of Israel, yes, the same Israel that's over there right now, he will establish his kingdom, he is the Messiah of the Jews, and he came to save the whole world, that one day he will create a new heavens and a new earth where only righteousness dwells. My hope is that we always, with one mind and one mouth, will unite to glorify God through our beliefs that come from the scriptures, from the scriptures. That's my hope. That's my prayer. That will always be united with that. And will all also always be united, not just by our beliefs, but our, by our behavior, right? That will stop judging one another over minor issues and personal convictions. That will stop judging one another over politics, whether our candidate won or did not win. That, by the way, as we go through the, the scriptures, verse, just listen to this for a second. This is mind-blowing to me, okay? So we're going verse by verse through the Bible, through Romans, and we just happened to get to Romans 13 right before the election about God and government, and now that it's all over and there's protests all around the country, we just happen to be in a place in the Bible that's called harmony. Huh. Wow. It's the power of God's word. And so, hey, we gotta unite to glorify God by our beliefs and our behavior. We gotta stop judging and criticizing one another over minor stuff that doesn't matter, over other issues, personal convictions, customs, right? And even when somebody blows it and sins, we gotta stop ostracizing them, making them feel like they're worse sinners than anybody else. They're not. We're all. Sinful, we've all come short of the glory of God. We shouldn't be there to step on them while they're down. We should be there to love them, encourage them, like Jesus said to the woman taken into adultery, I don't condemn you, just go and sin no more. We're not compromising, we're not agreeing with the sin. We're saying we love you, your soul has eternal value, God loves you, we want to restore you, we want to see you go forward for the Lord. See, that's the spirit that produces harmony in the church. We gotta love one another, be patient with one another. And why is that important? Because when we have a spirit of harmony here, it attracts people. Wow, those people really love one another. I just, I just sense something when I go to these services. I sense love and peace and joy. But if we give in to judging and criticizing and backstabbing and gossiping, then there's tension in the air. Like Elvis, the Holy Spirit's left the building. <laughs> and it's kind of like, where did God go? And everybody's like, right? Jesus put it this way in his prayer to the Father. I do not pray 
for these alone, that's his 12 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? Who's he praying for? All y'all. Right? I was born in Texas. Okay. <laughs> that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Why? That the world may believe that you sent me. Do you guys see what's at stake? You see why it's so important for us to get along, for us to love one another, for us to be unified? What's at stake is whether or not the world actually believes that God has a son and sent him to redeem the world. Pretty high stakes. And so that, to me, is good enough reason to forgive your brother for what they said about you, forgive your sister for what they did to you. That right there, that last part that's I, that I underlined, is so absolutely important. Now, we know, as I began to wind down this message, we know that one of the problems in the early church was, in Rome, there was this division within the church between Jewish believers, right, and Gentile believers. And so, again, real quick recap um, from last week, the Jewish believers believed in the ceremonial law of God from the time they were little toddlers, it's ingrained in them. They accept Yeshua as their Messiah, they come to church. These Gentiles, they don't have any such customs, law of who, what are you talking about? They get saved, they come into the same church. And now all of a sudden you have disagreements and discord over personal convictions, customs, and according to the new covenant, minor issues that don't really matter. And that's happening in the church. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes to the church of Rome and says, guess what, Jews and Gentiles, Jesus came for you both. He loves both of you. So you may wanna try to get along in the church. And that's the, the theme, the heart of what he says now in verses seven through 13. And so check it out. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the, what's the word? That's Jews, the circumcision. For the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. Okay, once again, that's the Abrahamic covenant. God said to Abraham, hey, look up, see the stars? So shall your descendants be. And from your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Your seed, capital S, Jesus Christ. He confirmed it to Jacob to Isaac, to Jacob, okay? And so Jesus, yes, he did come for the Jews, absolutely no doubt. And in verse nine, that the who? Whoa, I'm glad he remembered us. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now some Jews would say, Gentiles? What are you talking about? They're not God's people. Oh, wait, let me take your Hebrew Bible and prove it to you. Paul was a master at this. As it is written, Psalm 118, 49, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name, Psalm 18, 49, sorry. And then verse 10, and again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's Deuteronomy 32, 43. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you people. Psalm 1, 
19.1. And Paul's incredible. And again, right? Let's go to Isaiah, if you don't believe me yet. There shall be a root of Jesse. Anybody in the house know who Jesse is? Whose father was Jesse? David. Okay, there's gonna be a root of Jesse. Somebody in David's line. Someone who's gonna be born in the lineage of David. And, verse 12, he who shall rise to reign over the who? Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall hope. And so there in Isaiah 11, verse 10, talking about Jesus Christ, the son of David, and one day he's gonna come back and he's gonna reign over not just the Jews, the Gentiles. Can't wait for that day. And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in, please underline the word, believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's your fourth point of harmony. We will be in harmony with one another when we truly believe. Okay, stay with me here, okay? Listen to this. Yes or no, did Jesus come for the Jews? Yes or no? Yes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek or Gentiles. He came for the Jew, but he also came for the Gentiles. How do you know? Paul just quoted four scriptures from the Old Testament, but here's a good New Testament verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. All right, so believe. The same word in John 3, 16 is the same word Paul just used in Romans 15, 13. Let's define it. Here's your last point today. We'll define the word believe. It means to think to be true, to be persuaded of, to place confidence in, to trust. Now, this is important. Here's why this is important. This is the difference between heaven and hell, right here. God made you body, soul, and spirit. He made you material and immaterial. Your material part will die. Your immaterial part will go on and live somewhere for all eternity, either in heaven, I'm gonna use the word, or hell. Okay, what's the difference? Do you believe? You say, I believe all these facts about Jesus. I believe he lived 2,000 years ago. He was a great prophet, good teacher. Obviously, he changed history because so many people want to follow him. And so I, I, I believe in Jesus. I've got news for you. The devils believe and tremble. Any devils going to heaven? Right? No, 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 it's not just to think to be true, it's to be persuaded of, here it is, to place your confidence in and to trust. And so I've done this before, but we get, I don't know, 20, 25 visitors every week, so I'll, I'll do it again, because it so illustrates what I'm trying to say. Here you have a chair. I believe that chair exists. There it is. Here's my question, you can answer out loud. Is that chair right now holding up my weight? No. But I believe. I believe it exists. So, the devils believe and tremble. 
No, the only way that you truly believe in the biblical sense is you need to put your confidence in, you need to trust. And so here I go, and I'm not too sure, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this. And so I sit down, I'm sitting down, but I got my foot right here. Now, have I put my full confidence in the chair? Yes or no? No. And so many people say, you know, yeah, I believe Jesus died for the world, but you gotta be good too. And so I'm making sure, I'm, I'm, I'm trying my hardest to live this good life because his, listen, sacrifice was not sufficient. I got a part to play too. Is this person putting their full confidence and trust in Jesus? It's finally when you and I come to the end of ourselves and we understand that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was sufficient and we completely, totally put our confidence in him, believing that what he did on the cross wasn't just for the world, it was for me, that he bled, that he died so I could not die and go to hell, he paid for me, he rose again, and I have confidence in you, Jesus. My, you're my only hope, you're my hero. And now, the Spirit comes in, and we're born again. Because salvation's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You guys get this? And so maybe you're here today and you haven't put your full trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm gonna ask you, right where you're sitting right now, I'm gonna ask you to, to, to put your trust in Jesus. So here's what we're gonna do today. I'm gonna lead you in a prayer right where you're at, okay? You know who you are, whether you're still doing this, or maybe you're like way out here, okay? Just so you know what you're getting into before I lead you in prayer. You are giving your life to Jesus. If you're not ready to give your life to Jesus, don't pray, don't mock God, okay? But if you're ready to give your entire life to Jesus Christ and trust in him and his sacrifice alone for your salvation, the forgiveness of your sins, then I want you to pray this in your heart after me. So bow your heads and close your eyes. And just say this in your heart. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, I am sorry for my sins, and I'm asking you to forgive me. The best way I know how, I'm turning right now from my sin and to you as my only hope. I'm trusting completely in you. I believe you died so I wouldn't have to die. I believe you bled and paid for my sins so I wouldn't have to in hell. I believe you rose from the grave and right now I open my heart and I receive you, Jesus, as my savior and the boss of my life. Thank you for being my hero. It's in your name that I pray, amen, amen. Now, if you're here today and you're willing um, and you just prayed that prayer, 
I'm gonna ask you, uh, just raise your hand and leave your hand up, whoever you are. Raise your hand, leave your hand up. God bless you, God bless you, God bless you and you and you in the back, all you guys over here. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com. Click on Home, then Knowing Christ.